Happy Easter. Today is the day that Christians specifically remember and celebrate the singular event that is, um, you could say it's the centerpiece, but it's also the foundation of the belief system known as Christianity. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that I phrase it that way is because the Apostle Paul, writing in a letter known as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, actually says that if the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ did not really happen, he says it's not like Christianity still has a lot of good things to say and it gives people hope and it even does some good in the world, so no harm, no foul. Paul said that if we're wrong about this, then we of all people are most to be pitied. That means that it is not an exaggeration to say that the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is the T upon which all of Christianity rests. Now, given the gravity of that, let's look at one of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. I'm in Mark chapter 16, and I'll just read verses 1 to 8. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. I didn't know how to pronounce her name correctly until Anthony did it for me on Good Friday. Thank you, Anthony. Shout out. Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. This is God's word. <clears throat> now when people in our highly uh, skeptical um, secular culture hear an account like this, there's really two questions that have to be dealt with. First off, did this really happen? And secondly, if so, what does it really mean? I've been in full-time ministry for a little over 10 years now, and when I got started in ministry, every year Easter would roll around and I put together my message. My messages would, would aim specifically at answering that second question, what does the resurrection mean? And you have to talk about what the resurrection means, of course, but what what I've realized after doing this for a decade is that if you want to communicate in a helpful way to people in this culture, then before you talk about the meaning of the resurrection, you have to address the intellectual obstacles that people have with it. And even if you don't have any intellectual obstacles with the resurrection yourself, I can promise you that people that you know and love do, and so it's not responsible for us to simply avoid it. So those two questions, did this really happen, and secondly, if so, what does this really mean, are going to basically serve as the outline for our time together. So, so what I'd like to do is begin by offering you three reasons that it's very difficult to dismiss the fact that Jesus was... Uh, literally, physically, and historically raised from the dead. Those three reasons are, number one, the timing's too early. 
Number two, the content is too counterproductive. And number three, the transformation is too radical. Let me go through those briefly. First and foremost, the first reason it's difficult to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because the timing is too early. One of the more common objections that people have uh, with Christianity in general has to do with the timing of the writing of the accounts of Jesus' life. Um, A lot of people in our culture, if asked about Jesus, will kind of say something along these lines that, uh, you know, Jesus was was a good man. He was a wise teacher. He was a forward thinker and kind of a cultural revolutionary. But over time, his followers embellished about his life, and, and after centuries of the legends evolving and you know, all of these truth claims getting added in there, maybe he was the son of God, maybe he was really resurrected, after centuries of the story kind of changing, that got written down and, and codified, and it became what Christians refer to as the New Testament, and, that, and that's how you have Christianity. That's a really common perception, and it's basically, what that is is sort of a mixture of what you'll get in uh, Religion 101, Philosophy 101, and the Da Vinci Code kind of all crammed together. The only problem with that explanation is that everything about it's wrong. The, the New Testament documents written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and Paul were, were not written centuries after the events they described. They were written within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses that are mentioned in these accounts. Uh, Mark, the author of this gospel account, was actually writing just about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul the Apostle, who wrote most of our New Testament, was writing within just 15 years of the crucifixion of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually makes the claim that not only did Jesus appear to people after his resurrection, but he says that on one occasion, Jesus, after his resurrection, in his resurrected body, Paul says that Jesus on one occasion appeared to over 500 people at one time, and he chases that by saying that most of those people are still alive, and therefore you can go ask them and see if what I'm telling you is the truth. I don't have to tell you, that is an insane claim to make if you know you're making this whole thing up. Because when people heard Paul say that, if every one of those eyewitnesses does not corroborate Paul's claim, then Christianity dies before it gets off the ground. And yet here we are 2,000 years later still talking about this. So the first reason it's difficult to sidestep the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus is number one, the timing's too early. But, but secondly, uh, the content is too counterproductive. And what I mean by that is if you were going to make up a story, this is going to sound strange coming from a pastor, you, you, you would have made up something that sounded more believable than Christianity. Here's what I mean. Maybe people hear that and say, all right, fine. Maybe the accounts were written pretty close to the events they described, but the reason people bought this is because back then people were, were gullible and prone to believing something like this. What's really fascinating to me is that if you hop over to Matthew's account of the resurrection, it's found in Matthew uh, chapter 28. Really, there's a really interesting detail included in there. I didn't notice until just a few um, years ago. We're told that when Jesus appeared after his crucifixion, so in his resurrected body in Matthew 28, that when he appeared to his disciples, the men who would go on to be the apostles, some of them worshipped, but some of them still doubted. Even after Jesus appeared in his resurrected body. And if you read the very first verses of the book of Acts, which is the historical document that records really the beginning of this movement known as the church, we're told that over a period of 40 days, Jesus needed to appear over and over to his disciples and provide them with many convincing proofs that he was real and they weren't just kind of making this whole thing up. Now, I'll just ask you, if you were lying about all of this, 
would you include that the apostles, some of the men that went on to lead the movement known as the church, would you include that some of them had trouble believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I think you'd want to paint the apostles as these, these stalwart figures of unwavering faith that believed against you know, hope that Jesus was going to come back just like he said he was. It's an insane thing to say that the apostles, who were the first communicators of the resurrection, at first at least, struggled to believe the resurrection themselves, but that's exactly how real life would be. All right, but what I mean by that is if Jesus Christ appeared in bodily form to you in your bedroom this evening, I don't think you would explode in a chorus of there's a river of life flowing out of me. I think two things would happen. First off, I think you would be terrified while it was happening. And secondly, I'm very confident that after it happened, you would convince yourself there's no way that really happened. I, there's no way I just saw what I thought I just saw. In other words, you would have doubts. Any normal person would have doubts, and the point is, these are normal people. But the reason that the apostles, at least initially, struggled to believe the resurrection, it's not just because they were normal people. There, there, there's something more going on there. Modern people have this mindset that says, you know, we don't, we don't believe in miracles anymore because, frankly, we're smarter than ancient people. We know how the world works, so we put away those, that archaic belief in miracles. Um, and, you know, back then, people had a pre-scientific understanding of the world, so they were gullible and prone to believing something like this. It is true, of course, that ancient people were more likely to believe in miracles than modern people are. However, all of the original followers of Jesus were Jewish, including Mark, who actually wrote this account. And while most Jewish people did believe in a resurrection at the end of history in which God gathered his faithful few to himself, restored the world, and then gave his righteous ones resurrected bodies, what absolutely no Jewish person believed is this idea that one person could get their resurrected body in the middle of a, of a world that's still broken and stained by sin and just start walking around. And, and so the point is, and, and uh, New Testament scholars like N.T. Wright have made this point really convincingly, if you were going to make up a religion with which to mislead and deceive first century Jewish people, you would have never come up with something that sounded like Christianity. You would have never come up with, with something that, that posits that a poor Jewish carpenter conceived out of wedlock that only ever did anything publicly for three years after which he was abandoned and betrayed by his disciples. He was then promptly executed in the most humiliating way possible via Roman crucifixion, came back to life three days later because he was God. You would never make up a story like that if you were trying to mislead and deceive first century Jewish people because they'd be the last people on the planet to buy it. I say that to say that, that many people in our culture today, and I'm willing to bet a number of people listening to me right now, you might have different reasons than a first century Jewish person for being skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus, but they were just as skeptical as you and I are prone to being. So, so here's the question as a thought experiment. The question is, what kind of evidence would you need for you to go all in on Christianity to the point that you would be willing to suffer, to bleed, and to die for it rather than deny it. Right, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you would need incredibly strong, highly convincing evidence. Well, that's exactly what these people did. They were just as prone to being skeptical to the physical, literal, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet they did go all in on believing in it, to the point that they suffered for it, they bled for it, 
and they died for it, which means they must have gotten evidence as strong as you and I would need. You can say what you will about these people, but they were not gullible morons willing to believe in something that did not make any sense because they had no problem exercising blind faith. If that's what Christianity required, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. The original recipients of this message in a a resurrected Messiah They had every reason to discard this, but they didn't. And the most likely explanation for that is because this story is true. So first off, the timing's too early. Secondly, the content's too counterproductive. But thirdly and lastly, the transformation was too radical. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at the command given to the women in verse 7, they're told to go and tell. They're, 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 They're told to be carriers of this message that a dead Jewish carpenter had died and come back to life because he was God. All right, now, that's basically the same command that Jesus himself would later on give to his disciples in a passage that Christians have famously titled the Great Commission. You're probably familiar with that, where Jesus, after his resurrection, assembles his disciples, the ones that w- weren't even brave enough to stand with him in his hour of greatest need, and Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. Now, I wonder if you've ever really thought about what they were being commanded there, like what's actually happening in the Great Commission, because essentially what Jesus was doing is he's saying, okay, you 11 uneducated fishermen, I want you to go into the world and transform the world with a message that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God. Here's the craziest thing of all. That's what happened. They got the job done. Now, what I'm about to share with you, what I'm about to share with you is to me the most compelling argument for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's really fascinating about this argument, it does not depend on the Bible. So even if, you're, if, if you've come this morning and you're not even sure what, what you think, is, you know, is the Bible really reliable? Is it really God's word? Which first off, I'm thrilled that you honored us with your presence this morning. Thank you so much for coming. But even if you're not sure where you're at with the Bible, that's not necessary for this last argument. That's why I saved it for last. Here it is. Try to follow me. There were plenty of messianic movements in Israel the decades before and after the death of Jesus. And there have been, I would say, countless messianic movements throughout human history. What I mean when I say a messianic movement, Buddhism is not a messianic movement, neither is Hinduism, neither is Islam. A messianic movement is when an individual claims not just to to know how to help you connect with God or to be a, a prophet of God, but a messianic movement is when a person claims to be God. Okay, Buddha died saying, strive without ceasing. He didn't say, it is finished, put your hope in me. He just told you how to connect with God. Same thing with Muhammad, same thing with Joseph Smith. Every single messianic movement in history has four identifiable phases. We can go through them real quick. Here they are. Number one, the leader claims to be divine. Number two, a group of people, for whatever reason, believe the leader's claim. Number three, The leader dies, and because all dead people have a tendency to do the same thing, which is stay dead, number four, the movement dies, right? When you make the claim, when you move from, yeah, I'm a prophet of God, I'm a spokesperson of God, I'm here to help you connect with God, when you make the claim that you yourself are God, And you convince people to put their hope in you, to put their trust in you because you are the author of their salvation, a claim Jesus made all over the place in the gospel accounts, then when you die, your movement dies with you. 
Every single messianic movement in human history has gone that way. There is exactly one exception to that rule. It's known as Christianity. Not only did Christianity survive the death of its founder, but after the death of its founder, it took off like a rocket as hundreds and thousands of Jews and Greeks, men and women, slave and free, people of all backgrounds, started believing this crazy-sounding idea that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God to the point that in the year 380, the Roman emperor Theodosius actually declared Christianity the official belief system of the Roman Empire. That means in about the year 30, they, Rome murdered the founder of Christianity. About 350 years later, they are de- publicly declaring the truth of Christianity. And I will tell you, no historian has explained in a satisfactory way how that happened apart from the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let, let's put all that together, and if you would, let's just, let's just hop into the story here. All right, on that very first Easter, approaching that tomb, there's only three explanations. All right? You can say, I don't believe the tomb was empty in the first place. Fine. But how could Paul writing just 15 years after the crucifixion, make the claim that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are still alive and therefore are open to interrogation if the tomb had a dead guy in it. You don't, you don't communicate like that if there's a body rotting in a tomb. If that was the case, we would have never heard the name Jesus because Christianity would have died before it got off the ground. Number two, you can say, okay, I'll give you. The tomb was empty, but that's because the first followers of Jesus stole the body and lied about the whole thing. It's a hoax. Let's investigate that for a moment. Maybe they did. Maybe the first followers of Jesus made the whole thing up. And then hundreds of those liars went on to live these supernaturally changed lives marked by compassion and kindness and boldness and self-sacrifice that literally changed the world, the vast majority of them choosing to be disenfranchised, tortured, and murdered all for what they knew they were making up, right? If if Christianity benefited you in any way in the first several centuries, I can see why there would have been some incentive to, to lie about this. But remember, for the first several hundred years, you had nothing to gain and everything to lose by saying, I follow Jesus. You were disowned by relatives. You had your property confiscated by the government. And by the time Nero sat on the throne of the Roman Empire, he was dipping Christians in wax and burning them alive to light his garden. You're telling me that people signed up for that for what they knew was a hoax? Pardon me for saying that is not terribly compelling. All right? With that, and this is, this is the third option, maybe you can say, fine, it wasn't a hoax. It wasn't sinister. It was just a sincere delusion. What you're talking about here are grief-stricken disciples who needed to believe in something, so they just talked themselves into believing that our beloved Savior, our beloved rabbi, the Jewish carpenter Jesus, came back to life. And at the risk of sounding offensive, I just want to say if that's where your mind goes, it shows how little you know about how people thought in the first century. No one listening to this today would have had more trouble believing this story than first century Jews. And yet, and yet, these Jews got so much evidence that Jesus was alive, that it transformed their lives. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and every year, billions of people with a B are still celebrating the birth, the death, 
and the resurrection of this one Jewish rabbi who claims something that no other founder of any other major belief system has ever dared to claim, which is not just that he can help you find God, but that he was God and he came all this way to find you. Now, I don't know if you've heard all this before or whether or not you think that was compelling, but I've said everything that I've said up to this point in the teaching to simply offer you one idea that I think is so important for people to be presented with, specifically in our culture. It's this. You do not have to check your intellect at the door to follow Jesus. If that's what it required, I would not follow him, and I certainly would not be telling anybody else to. On the contrary, my conviction is that any intellectually responsible person who is sincere when they say, I want to know the truth, will investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there are really good reasons to believe that it really did happen. But it's not enough to simply believe in the resurrection of Jesus as some naked historical fact like it's the Revolutionary War or something. So the second question I want to I, I ask and walk through this morning is, okay, if it really did happen, then secondly, what does the resurrection actually mean? What does it mean for people today? I want to give you two answers to that question, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> the first answer is this. Number one, the resurrection can change you in this life. <clears throat> Now, I could have answered this question a billion different ways, but if I can just for a moment here. The reason I wanted to, to, to lead with this answer, that, that the resurrection can change you in this life, is because I've had the privilege of talking to a number of people who are not Christians, but have asked me questions as a pastor and kind of shared their, their perceptions and insights with me. And one of the kind of common denominators I've noticed is that a lot of people kind of outside looking in at Christianity have this mindset that, that says like, hey, that's great. I'm sure that it works for some people. I just don't need it. It's not relevant. It's not going to help me be a better person, a better spouse, a better parent, deal with my insecurities, my fears, my anxieties, whatever. It just, it doesn't matter in this life. And, and if that's where your mind is, l- let me ask you, have you ever asked yourself why the resurrection of Jesus made his followers so happy so, um, so kind, so compassionate, so humble and bold at the same time, and, and overall, why it made them so, so self-giving, so self-sacrificial. And it's amazing. If, if you follow along in this series, you know in Mark's gospel account and all the gospel accounts, none of the disciples are portrayed as being known for any of those things before the resurrection. They actually look like jerks most of the time, but all of them are known for this, this compassionate, courageous, self-giving love after the resurrection. For that matter, we have historical documents that, that show that all of the first followers of Jesus in the first several centuries in the Roman Empire were known for that same thing. And it all begs the question, why? And the answer is because, first off, the resurrection has the power to change you in this life. When you believe in it, you internalize it, and you make it the foundation of your life. Now, to explain what I mean there, let me get a little psychological on you, okay? You thought you were just coming to church to hear an Easter message. I'm throwing in a group therapy session for free. This one's on the house, all right? Every human heart has a basic motivation that causes, I'll make this personal, causes you. Your heart has a basic motivation that causes you to get up out of bed in the morning and face life. If you're still breathing, it's because something is driving you to move out into life. And according to the Bible, this might surprise you, but the basic, that basic drive for all people is fear. And that goes all the way back to the very first story that the Bible tells you and I about ourselves. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we read that when sin entered the world, that first couple, Adam and Eve, when they heard God approaching, they did something that they'd never done before. They ran from God, and they hid themselves, and they sewed fig leaves together, all for one reason. It's because they were afraid. And what that story is getting across is that from the moment sin entered the world, fear would be the primary motivator of the human heart. Just as a side note, one of the reasons that I believe in the Bible more than I did years ago is because it makes it, it explains what I sense in myself and what I see out in the world better than anything I've ever read. The, the Bible's saying that fear drives every human heart, and I would just offer to you, look around and try to argue with that. Everywhere you look, people are driven by the fear of rejection. We're driven by the fear of failure. We're driven by the fear of missing out. We're driven by the fear of not measuring up. We're driven by the fear of being exposed, the fear of loss, the fear of not being in control, the fear of being taken advantage of, the fear of death itself, right? If, if you look into your own heart and you don't see fear, please don't be offended. Take this up with God, not me. According to the Bible, it's because you haven't found the courage to actually face yourself yet. Now, elaborating on this idea and, and how it manifests itself in our lives today I'm going to share something with you that Tim Keller wrote in his book. It's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And he's basically talking about um, how what happened to Adam and Eve still manifests itself in your and my life today. Here's what he said. Nakedness is a deep sense that there's something wrong with me, something imperfect about me. There's something inadequate about me. I'm not what I ought to be. That's the reason we cannot bear to let somebody else see us as we really are. We spend all our lives finding ways to cover up that deep, radical sense of inadequacy. And then he asked a number of questions, and I would just ask you, if you could, make yourself vulnerable enough to ask yourself these questions. See if any of these apply to you. Why do so many people work themselves to death to be successful? Why do some people have no boundaries, not able to say no to anyone? Why do others stay unattached, not allowing any real friendships or committed romantic relationships to develop? Why are some people rescuers who are always trying to save people in crisis? Why do some live in perpetual victim mode, spending all their time blaming others for harming them? Why do others engage in abusive behavior, living a life based on the principle do unto others before they get a chance to do unto you? Why do so many love to spread slander and gossip about others? Why all these things? These are fig leaves. Your perfectionism is a fig leaf. Your work is a fig leaf. You're holding on to your youth as a fig leaf. Your desperate need for approval is a fig leaf. These are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have. All Keller's doing there is he's trying to get us to see what literally the very first story in the Bible is trying to get us to see about ourselves, which is that deep within us, there's, there's this fear that drives us, and it manifests itself in all kind of broken, destructive ways. Now, in response to that, what some people have said is, okay, so just get religious. Right? I think it was Marx that said, religion's the opium of the masses. Great, if it helps people, if it comforts people, then just get religious. I'm gonna say something, I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but permit me to actually be a Christian on Sunday morning. I'll tell you that what every religion, all every religion has the power, of, has the power to do is aggravate that fear within us without being able to dispel it. Because every, just think about this, every religion tells you that God is out there somewhere and it's up to you to reach that God. And of course, every religion tells you how. According to Buddhism, it's the Eightfold Path. According to Islam, it's the Five Pillars. According to Judaism, it's the Ten Commandments. 
According to Confucianism, it's filial piety. According to Hinduism, it's navigating the karmic cycle of reincarnation. And as different as those sound on the surface, they're all fear-based. They're all built on this idea that if you do not do enough, if you yourself are not found to be enough, then God will not bless you and hear you and forgive you and love you and accept you and save you and take you to heaven. And so according to that framework, you move through life and of course you're trying to be a good person because we all need to have some basic sense that we're valuable and significant as a human being. But in everything you do, you're always driven by this low-grade fear, this question in the back of your mind, have I done enough? Am, Am I going to be found to be enough? And I'll tell you, Christianity is the only belief system that can deal with that fear, dispel that fear, and drive it out of a human heart in a way that can actually transform a human heart because Christianity alone teaches that God knew we could never reach him, so he came to us. He entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ who lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we should have died, and was raised again so that he can offer us something that's never even been conceived of in any other belief system, which is this thing called salvation by grace. It's a salvation that does not depend on on you or anything you do. It depends entirely on who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done for you. That means, according to Christianity, you can move through life today. Would you just think about the implications of this for you as a parent, for you as a spouse, for you as a son or a daughter, for you as a boss or an employee, for you as an in-person. Christianity teaches that from this day forward, you can move through life knowing that you already have the love and the approval and the acceptance of God, and it does not depend on your track record to keep it up. You think through that for any length of time, you realize the salvation that Jesus offered us during his time here, this is not just a spiritual thing that's kind of relegated to the ethereal and the intangibles of life. The salvation, the Greek word just means healing there. The healing that Jesus died to offer you and I is a spiritual thing, but it's also a relational thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a psychological thing. What Jesus has put on the table is the holistic restoration of human beings under his lordship. So first and foremost, the resurrection can change you in this life. But secondly, and this will be our last idea, the resurrection can give you hope beyond this life. Real quick history lesson here. Prior to Christianity, all ancient cultures believed that history was cyclical. In other words, it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, If you look at other creation accounts, the Old Norse, Um, Sumerian, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, they they basically all taught the same thing. It's that mankind's creation was the accidental byproduct of a a war between the gods. What that meant is that we were here by accident and we would be here until we were simply not here any longer and that would be the end of the story. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't have a point. It's just we're here until we're not. And what's fascinating is that is essentially exactly what modern secularism teaches Scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. We just kind of regurgitate and, and reconfigure old ideas over and over again. And, and really, that's all modern secularism is. I've, I've shared this quote with you before. This is from a, um, a famous 20th century philosopher named Bertrand Russell. And this quote perfectly encapsulates the story that secularism is telling you about you. He says that man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving that his origin, growth, hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, 
all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Here's where he goes with this. He says, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Happy Easter, everyone. Uh, All he's saying there is what every belief system prior to Christianity taught, and it's what modern secularism teaches today. What that's saying, if I could put this into layman's terms, and pardon the expression, it's saying that you are nothing more than the unplanned pregnancy of the universe. That neither you nor anything you do ultimately matters, because eventually we're all going to burn up in the death of the sun, and we will be cosmically, infinitely, eternally forgotten. Now, there's all kinds of problems that we could poke in that framework, in that worldview and understanding of reality. I just want to offer one to you, that a worldview like that and an understanding of ultimate reality like that offers you and I absolutely no resources in the midst of suffering. Now, that to me is a real problem because one of the things that every single person who hears this teaching has in common, regardless of what you believe, Regardless of what you bring to the table this morning, we all have at least these two things in common. Let's just get real transparent with each other. Number one, life has taken things from you. Number two, it's going to take a whole lot more before it's done. Now, what that means, this is the human condition, and I'll make it personal. What that means is that if you don't have a way of dealing with loss, then you don't have a way of dealing with life. Earlier this year, I I, um, read a book called Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser. I pulled about a dozen quotes um, in this this series that we've been over the last 14 weeks walking through Mark's gospel. And there's a section of the book where he talks about the challenges that all human beings are likely to experience as we enter into midlife and begin this period of time that he calls the long middle years. It begins for most of us sometime in our late, mid to late 20s, and it basically goes until our time here is through. And before I read it to you, I'll I'll just be, um, I'll be candid. Even a few years ago, this would not have meant to me what it does now. And so I'm sure that as I read this, this is going to hit some of you where you live. Um, But even if it doesn't, I would just say, put it in your back pocket. Here's what he says. As we sort out more who we are, make permanent commitments, and take on more and more responsibilities, we soon find ourselves beset by a new set of struggles, disappointment, tiredness, boredom, frustration, resentment. Consciously and unconsciously, we begin to sense that the big dream for our lives is over without its ever paying the huge dividends we expected. We become disappointed that there is not more, that we have not achieved more, and that we ourselves are not more as we sense ourselves stuck with second best, reluctant to make our peace there. All those grandiose dreams, all that potential, all that energy, and what have we achieved? More of our sensitivities begin to break through and we sense more and more how we've been wounded, how life has not been fair to us. New demons then emerge, bitterness, anger, jealousy, and a sense of having been cheated. Disappointment cools the fiery energies of our youth, 
and our enthusiasm for life begins to be tempered by bitterness and anger as we struggle to accept our limits and make peace with a life that now seems too small and unfair. What Rollheiser says there, he just puts into words why loss is so difficult. Let me ask you a question. Maybe no one's ever asked you this. It sounds strange. Why is loss difficult? Why is it difficult to deal with the brokenness? I think anybody with any intuitive sense knows something's not right with this world. Why is it so difficult to deal with that? Why is it so difficult to deal with suffering in the myriad forms that it takes? Why is it so difficult to deal with our, to deal with death, be it your own or that of somebody that you know and love? He, he just answered that question for us. What, what it all boils down to, it's this fear that we have. It, would you please just search yourself and ask yourself if you don't see this in yourself? According to Rollheiser, the fear that we have underneath every other fear that makes dealing with life so difficult is this fear that this life is all we have that this is all we're ever going to get, that these experiences, these opportunities, these relationships with these people, this is all we're ever going to get, that this childhood, this family, this body, this world, this life, this story is all we'll ever have. And so when you, when you go down that road, yeah, I get where Bertrand Russell's coming from. That is a firm foundation of unyielding despair because then the human condition is one in which we, we, we mull through life, slowly losing everything that's given our lives meaning with no hope that it's ever going to be returned to us. I say all that to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the face of this looming question, is this all there is? Is this all I get? The resurrection of Jesus Christ says no. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ through his resurrection, offers you and I something that no other belief system has ever offered because it's more than just a consolation for the life you've lost. It's the restoration of the life you've always longed for but never been able to find. I'm going to call the worship team up, explain what I mean by that, and, and we'll be through. <clears throat> I was born and raised in church. Uh, there was never a time in my life when I wasn't exposed to this, but, but I have to confess that for most of my life, I've, I've kind of thought that the story Christianity was telling us is that, you know, you give your life to Jesus and this life is really hard, but after this, God's going to take you to heaven and heaven's going to be great. But a couple of years ago, I came across a book called Hope in Times of Fear, uh, Tim Keller wrote it on the um, front end of COVID when he was newly diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. It's, it's a book entirely de devoted to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications. And in that book, he said something that, that stayed with me. He said that the resurrection of Jesus is not just hope for the future. He said the resurrection of Jesus is a hope from the future. That means that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what's happened is this, this healing power of God that will one day fix everything has broken into human history. It's begun, and when it's done, everything will be fixed. This is exactly what the New Testament authors are trying to get us to understand when they tell us that Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit and that Jesus himself is the firstborn of the dead. Here's what that means, and we're almost done, so please lean in here. What that means is that when those first followers of Jesus saw Jesus in his resurrected body that first Easter almost 2,000 years ago, what they were looking at was a glimpse 
of the restorative power of God that would one day not only heal all of creation, but it would heal us. It means the story that Christianity is telling us about humanity, the story that Christianity is telling us about ourselves is not that one day God will take us all to heaven. It's that one day God will bring heaven here. That one day he will resurrect and renew this whole world and make it what it was always meant to be and he will resurrect and renew you and make you what you were always meant to be in Jesus. And the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that that story is a true story and the promises of this God can be trusted. In the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, one of the characters says, I can't read this without getting emotional. I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over. And then ultimately at the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts to allay all indignation, to redeem all human villainy, all bloodshed. It will suffice not only to make forgiveness possible, but also to justify everything that has happened with men. That's the promise of the resurrection. It's that your suffering will be healed and smoothed over. That something will one day occur that will be so precious that it will suffice for your heart to allay your indignation, to make forgiveness possible, and to justify everything that you have experienced in this broken, sin-stained world. It's not just a consolation. That's the, the promise of resurrection is not just a consolation for the life that you've lost. It's the restoration of the life that you've always longed for, that a part of you deep within you senses you were made for that you've never been able to find down here. That, that's a hope unlike anything any other belief system has ever offered people. And that's what caused people in that first century and over the last 2,000 years from every nation, tribe, and tongue to look on to Christianity, to hear this message, and to say, I want to believe that. And so I'll leave you today just speaking to two groups of people. If, if you're here and you're already a believer, then my prayer to quote Paul in Philippians chapter 3 is that you would move from this service knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, that you would go forth today and walk through everything that your heavenly Father walks you through with all the confidence and the peace and the poise of someone who knows that resurrection awaits you. But if you're listening to this and you're, you're still not ready to believe this, you're still not ready to go all in on this, I accept that, I understand that. But if you don't find yourself at least wanting this story to be true, I'm sorry, I don't think you've understood it yet and I hope you keep coming back until you do. Because where you are right now is where all of the people in this story started. When they first heard this, when they first saw this, they still had questions, they still had doubts, they were still skeptical but they stayed curious and they kept leaning in and they let the evidence challenge their assumptions instead of allowing their assumptions to challenge the evidence. And eventually, Jesus transformed their lives. He's transformed my life and I'm here to tell you he'll transform yours too. Happy Easter. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us.
Lord Jesus, it is such a privilege to tell people the story I just did. There's nothing more meaningful I could do with my time here. Thank you for the privilege and the honor that it is. I just ask that our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, our hearts would be open this morning, and that we would know the power of your resurrection so that we could walk through this life and everything that we're going to experience with hope, with love, with joy, with peace, with confidence, with poise, not in ourselves, but in a crucified and resurrected Savior who's promised that somehow, some way, this is going to work together for our good. In the name of the risen King of the universe, Jesus Christ, we ask these things and all God's people said, amen. Amen.